When we look at the text that we're looking into this morning, there was an issue that goes on in the church of Pergamum, and it was, should not arise the church. As to the truth, there are times where compromise needs to be put aside. There's only one truth, and we need to embrace that truth. Not water it down, not put it off to the side somewhere, but understand that God when He communicates His Word, His truth, as followers of God, we need to embrace that. We need to follow it passionately. And that's what we're going to see as we look into this letter to the church at Pergamum. Now, before we get into these comments that we'll find from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church at Pergamum about how they were tolerating, how they were compromising things that they should not have, we're going to begin with the context of the letter as we have with the other letters we've studied so far. And what we find as we come into this context are some of the characteristics of the city of Pergamum. As a matter of fact, the church is mentioned as the recipient of the letter that we're going to look into. Now, none of us really think about Pergamum. When was the last time you thought about Pergamum? Probably some of you have never even heard of Pergamum. If you read Revelation, it's mentioned as a true city that existed in history past, and it had good points, and it had some challenges. And Pergamum is mentioned here, so we need to understand the recipients of the letter that Jesus addresses. So let's talk about Pergamum for a moment. Pergamum was a city that was about 10 miles inland from the coast, and it was along a river about 1,000 feet above the river's plain. And like many of the cities of what is now modern-day Turkey, Pergamum had some pagan influences that had a stronghold on the city. There was a huge temple that was dedicated to Soter Zeus, which means Zeus the Savior. And in this temple was a large throne, and people were compelled to worship Zeus. From the Greek background, they were to come before him. Even the Romans recognized his counterpart, Jupiter. And they were to come there and they were to worship, and much pressure was put upon the community to worship at this temple. But that wasn't all. As with the other cities, these were Greek cities that were in the Roman Empire. And in the Roman Empire, Domitian was the emperor, and Domitian required emperor worship. So there was pressure on people to not only worship Zeus, but also to worship Domitian. And he pressed that. In addition to that, there were temples to other gods throughout the city. And people were, again, pressured to worship these gods. So imagine being a church in the midst of all of this pressure to compromise, to add to your worship of God, the worship of these other gods. They were fine if you wanted to worship your God, but you'd better bow down to the other gods in addition. They were called upon to compromise. So Pergamum was right in the thick of all of this. 
But as we look in the context of this letter, not only do we look at Pergamum, we have to also look at the choice of attributes that emphasizes who Jesus is. Now, let me share this. As we look at each one of these churches, we find a different emphasis about Jesus. Jesus possesses all of the attributes and more that are described in each of these letters, but there's something unique to each church about an attribute that describes who Jesus is. And you know, that's what I find as as a follower of Jesus Christ. Jesus possesses all of the attributes that He has. He is eternal, and He is changeless. Jesus will always have all of the attributes that He has, but on occasion, because of what I've experienced in my life, one of those attributes of Jesus becomes a focal point for me because I need to think about who Jesus is in the context of this situation that I'm in. And certainly that's true of these churches that Jesus addresses in the book of Revelation. Now, the attribute that is mentioned here is from the first chapter, and look at what the Scripture says, the words of Him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, when the Scripture is talking about Jesus possessing a sharp two-edged sword that comes out of His mouth, what is it expressing? Think about what a sword represents. The sword was something that was used to defend the kingdom, right, and to go against the enemies of the kingdom. So, a two-edged sword represents how Jesus and His Word comes alongside defending the people of God. It is something that blesses the people of God. But that same two-edged sword, that same truth that comes out of Jesus' mouth also addresses the enemies of God. It judges them because they stand opposed to the truth of God. So when Jesus addresses the church at Pergamum, He is addressing them as a part of His kingdom, as those who are the people of God. But He is also pointing out those who were a part of the church who were not a part of the kingdom, who were following things that were not compatible with the truth of God. And so this double-edged sword really takes on both of these aspects, defending the people of God, but defeating the enemies of God. That's the way we need to view the Word of God. The Word of God is something that deepens our walk with Him. The Word of God is something that gives us a greater understanding of God. The Word of God is something that teaches us about the kingdom of God. But the truth that is expressed in the Word of God is also something that addresses the error of this world that rejects God. And it stands in judgment of those who speak against it. This is what Jesus wanted His readers to understand, but it's also something that is relevant to us today. We need to see the Word of God as our standard and not allow a culture, not allow peer group pressure, not allowed any of the things that would draw us away from confidence in God's truth and point us in a direction that is away from God's truth. This is the purpose of the Word of God. Now, as we continue in the text, we 
find a commendation. Again, as we look at the structure of all of these letters to these churches, there is generally a commendation. What are they good at? What are the things that Jesus looks upon and says, this is a good thing, I'm thankful for this? So what we find as we come to the next part of this passage, verse 13, is Jesus communicating with the church of Pergamum the things that they're doing well. Look at what he says, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Now, as we saw with the church at Smyrna, this idea of Jesus knowing about their situation, it communicates a lot. Jesus isn't some distant deity who sets things in motion and lets them unfold the way they will. Jesus is intimately aware of what we're going through. Jesus knew the challenges that the church at Pergamum faced. And by the way, Jesus knows the challenges that you face every day as well. He is intimately involved with you. He knows you. He knows what you experience. And so as he writes to the church at Pergamum, Jesus is telling them here in this text that they live in a difficult place. They live right where Satan's throne is. Now, what does he mean by you live where Satan's throne is? There are a few possibilities. One possibility is it was a reference to the throne that was right in the temple of Zeus. And people were compelled to go and bow before that throne and to eat food that was sacrificed to Zeus as a part of their worship. If you didn't do that, the community would come down on you like a ton of bricks. So possibly it's a reference to this being compelled to go and worship at the temple of Zeus, Zeus the Savior. Another possibility bowing down to the emperor, Domitian. Perhaps the throne that he's speaking of is a center for emperor worship, the throne of Rome. They would have been compelled to do this and faced possible martyrdom if they refused to do it. So when Jesus is acknowledging that they live in the context of a place where Satan's throne is, he's talking about the activity of those false religions that would compel people to embrace them, to accept them, to adopt them, to add them to their Christianity. Another possibility, and this is the one that I think is most likely, is that Satan's throne is referring to the hold that Satan had on the whole community. We need to understand that Satan is not just some made-up individual that is mythological, doesn't exist, but people talk about him to have an excuse to live the way that they want to live. That is not Satan. Satan is a person, a spirit that is at work in this world to try to suppress the work of God and to increase the work of evil. What Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamum is quite clear. You live in a place that is heavily influenced by satanic activity. And you know, I can understand just a taste of what this is like, because when Paula and I went to India, and 
we went into the cities there in India, there were temples to the millions of Hindu gods that were everywhere. And when you looked at the faces of the idols that were there in India, they looked like Halloween masks. They were frightening. They were awful looking. And I felt an oppression, a spiritual oppression. And I'm not one of those guys that talks about his feelings all the time, um, but I felt it, and it freaked me out. When Paula and I went into some of those communities, we both felt it. There was a darkness that we had to contend with. A very good friend of mine who's a missionary to Haiti, where Satan worship is prevalent, felt it there as well. You can feel that darkness. You can sense that Satan is alive and active and involved and engaged in the things in a community. And so this is what the people in Pergamum had to face. And listen, that oppression that you feel, it's not just a, ooh, that feels kind of creepy in a moment. It's an ongoing oppression that you sense as you're in the midst of that community. And to have to deal with that day in and day out is a difficult thing. The people that were in the church at Pergamum had to. They had to face that feeling of oppression. And they had to see that as they were sharing the gospel, Satan was doing everything that he could to frustrate their efforts to keep them from being effective in sharing the truth of God. Peter understood this when he wrote this in 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In other words, Satan isn't just kind of hanging out. He's aggressive. He is prowling like a roaring lion. He's looking to destroy whoever he can. So what is the counsel that Peter gives? Resist him. Firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Persecution is something that has existed in the past, and it exists to this day. As a matter of fact, this Sunday is the Persecuted Church Emphasis Sunday. How appropriate we're looking into a text like this on Pergamum on this day. There are Christians who know what it's like to live where Satan's throne is, and they face it every day. Something else we see as we look at this text. When we face this kind of oppression, we have to carry on in the face of persecution. Look at what Jesus says to the church at Pergamum in verse 13. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Now, there are a couple of things that the church at Pergamum was doing and carrying on in the face of persecution. Look at what they are as they're outlined for us here in this text. They hold fast to the name of Jesus. In other words, they were not adding 
to the Jesus revealed to them by the apostles' teaching and by the Scripture that they had received. You know, there's a temptation to tailor Jesus to our community, to make Him more palatable, to try and embrace our culture by transforming Jesus. We need to hold fast to Jesus' name. He is the one revealed in Scripture. We are not to customize Him. We are to look to Him as the one revealed as the true God, man, Jesus Christ. They were doing that. They were holding fast. We need to hold fast as well. Furthermore, they didn't deny the faith. Even when Antipas, a faithful witness, was killed among you. Now, holding fast to the faith means that, again, we look to the apostles' teachings. We look to the doctrine that the Scripture gives us. As we see evil coming against the church, we don't tuck and run. We stay strong in our belief. The example that's given in the eternal Word of God is Antipas, and we don't know much about Antipas because he's only mentioned here. But what we do know is this, he was a faithful witness. That word witness is the word martyr. And we know that he was martyred for his faith because it says he was killed among you where Satan's throne or where Satan dwells. You know, as I look at this, I'm challenged How would I respond to one who threatens to kill me unless I abandon the faith? A lot of times we look at that and we all wonder, don't we? Would I stand the test? Would I stand firm? And you know what I found as I've spoken with people who are in areas that are persecuted? God gives you what you need when you need it. What they found is, as they face the potential for death, God provides the courage and the strength to face that in the moment that they need it, by their dependence on Him. This is what Antipas did. He depended on God. He was a faithful witness. In other words, he didn't buckle, he didn't bow, he remained strong. This is what we're to do in following Antipas' example. We are to be followers of God in this same way. So here's a church in the midst of a terrible environment, standing strong, standing up, carrying on. Certainly this church will have no problems, right? Wish that were the case. You know what we find? That as Christians, we will face difficulty outside the walls of the church. But Satan doesn't look at the walls of the church and say, oh, I can't go in there and start working on people. As a matter of fact, some of our greatest struggles come within the walls of the church, and certainly that's the case here. There were compromises that were harming the church, and look at what Jesus relates to us as he talks about these compromises, verse 14. But I have a few things against you, 
you have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam. Now, here's a little history lesson in case you've forgotten who Balaam is. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. Do you remember the story of Balaam? It's in Numbers, chapters 22 through 25. And yes, there is some uh, dialogue and some narration in the book of Numbers, not just a bunch of numbers. Sometimes people start with numbers, read all of the cataloging of people, and say, on to the next book. Well, guess what? There are some important stories that are in Numbers, and Balaam was one of them. Balaam was a prophet who prophesied for profit. Basically, he was kind of like a prophetic hitman. And he could be hired to go and pronounce curses against people. And so that's what Balak, the king of Moab, decided to do. He saw that the children of Israel were approaching Moab, and he contacted Balaam and invited him to come and speak curses against the children of Israel as they were going to pass by Moab. And so on the way, remember the story? God has a miracle, and He has Balaam's donkey tell him, don't be so stubborn, turn back. That's a little poetic license there as far as don't be so stubborn. But it was definitely a miracle being spoken to by a donkey. And what does Balaam do? He persists. He wanted his paycheck. So he goes to Moab, and to me, this is kind of a humorous part of the story, because he intends to speak a curse against the children of Israel so that Balak will reward him monetarily. So when he goes to speak a curse... Out of his mouth, mouth comes a blessing. And I've always visualized this. Can't you imagine Balak? What? I paid you to curse them. What in the world are you doing blessing them? So he tries it multiple times. And each time he's trying to curse them, a blessing comes out. Finally, Balaam comes to the place where he says, you know, this is not working I can't curse them. If you want me to try and curse them one more time, I will. But out will come a blessing because God won't let me curse them. So what did he do? Balaam is referenced several times in Scripture because what he did was more evil than pronouncing a curse. You know what he did? He said to Balak, the king of Moab, look, I can't curse them. But let me tell you this. You send some of the best-looking women that you have into the camp of the Israelites, and you seduce them into immorality, and you get them to start worshiping some of your gods, and God will curse them. That was his counsel. That's what he said. Get them to compromise. You see, Old Testament law forbade them from worshiping other idols or any idols, and it forbade them to marry those who were outside their faith. Why? Because they would introduce idol worship into the community, and God would judge them. And that's exactly what happened. They were turning on God and turning to the Moabite women 
and the Moabite gods. So when Jesus talks about this in the context of what was going on in Pergamum, he was talking about the church allowing those who were coming in, teaching that it's okay to live in immorality and to embrace the culture around them by eating food that was sacrificed to idols in worship of Zeus. There was a problem in Pergamum. Now, when I read this, the duplicity of the people in Pergamum is stark, isn't it? How can they hold to the name of Jesus, face death remaining a faithful witness, and yet some of them turn around and become engaged in immorality? Or how can the church holding to Jesus and His teachings, allow the immoral teachings of those who are following the path of Balaam and Balak, how can they allow them to come into the church? And I started thinking about that, and it's not that uncommon. Today, there are many Christians who, if you ask them, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Oh, yes, absolutely, and I will give testimony to that, and I will tell you all about my faith in Jesus. But when it comes to morality outlined in God's Word, that's not as important. I can be a follower of Jesus, but I can also live in immorality. I can be duplicitous. This was the problem at Pergamum. There were those who were leading the church into this immoral kind of behavior, and Jesus was calling them out for it. Look at what else we find in this text. Look at verse 15, and verse 15 brings out the truth that some of you hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Now, some of you may have noticed when we went through the church at Ephesus, I skipped over the sixth verse of the second chapter. You have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The group of the Nicolaitans is mentioned a couple of times, and what I wanted to do when I skipped over that is address it when we come to the church at Pergamum. So let's talk about the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans were people, and the name Nicholas has to do with the idea of conquering, and what many historians believe the Nicolaitans taught was that we don't have to follow the moral standards of God. We have conquered we are greater than those things. So we don't have to listen to anything that God says. We can play fast and loose with the rules of God, and we can do our own thing. That's what the Nicolaitans were teaching. So what is Jesus' assessment of it? In chapter 2, verse 6, He hates it. You do not want to have a teaching that Jesus hates. But this is what the Nicolaitans were doing. And here, Jesus is holding the church at Pergamum accountable because right in their midst, they were allowing those who were teaching these falsehoods to fellowship right alongside the faithful. Now, in our culture, tolerance is a wonderful thing, as I said earlier in the sermon. Compromise is good. And listen, there are times where we do need to be tolerant. As a matter of fact, the Bible calls it forbearance. 
There are differences that we may have with another person that we just put up with. We forbear. But listen, when it comes to the essential doctrines about God's truth, morality, and godly living, those are areas that we should not compromise. If somebody comes in and says it's okay to commit adultery, we don't give that person sanctuary where we allow them to perpetuate that teaching. If somebody comes in and tells us that Jesus isn't really God, we don't allow them to have a part in our fellowship. And here's why. Fellowship is something that takes place in the context of love. And listen, somebody is teaching that which is not true and which will mislead others. We are not loving the person who is spreading the error by allowing them to persist, and we are not loving those who are potentially misled. Love rejoices in the truth, right? So, if I am really loving, and this is a community of believers that is loving, I am going to see to it that people follow the truth. And when there is someone who teaches that which is not in keeping with God's truth, what am I to do? I'm to stand against it. You see, there is a corrupting influence of error that spreads within a church that overlooks its responsibility to maintain doctrinal purity. And if we really love the church, and if we really love the Lord, we don't stand by and watch that. As a matter of fact, I would say that if we are aware of a teaching that is taking place within our church family that is harming people, and we don't talk to the one perpetuating the bad teaching or to those who are impacted and misled by the bad teaching, we're complicit with the false teachers. People assume because we say nothing that we approve. So what God is calling us to in this text is to not do that. And that's what we find as we come to the last part of this passage, the call to repentance. Here, Jesus says to the church at Pergamum, verse 16, therefore, repent. Now, that's a simple instruction. What it means is this. You're heading in this direction. When you repent, you turn around and you go in this direction. They were moving toward compromise. They were engaged in following teachings that were totally foreign to the truth of God. And so what God says to them is, stop it. Stop compromising. Stop following these false teachings. Turn to God. The church needed to act. Not just say, hey, you know, someday we should really get around to discussing this, but going to the false teachers and asking them to repent, and if they refuse to repent, then saying, you must leave. And going to those who were experiencing the brunt of their teaching and being misled and try to doctrinally correct where they had gotten off base. 
This is what the church at Pergamum was to do. And listen, that is a responsibility of any church, isn't it? Every church has the responsibility to be true to God's Word. When we look at some of the teaching institutions around us that once stood for the truth of God, and we see the direction that many of them have taken away from the truth of God and embracing the opposite, it's startling. Places like Harvard and Princeton were seminaries at one time, and now they're purveyors of ideas that are totally contrary to the truth of God. It can happen in an educational system, and it can happen in a church. So that's why Jesus says to this church, repent. Don't follow that path. Look at what He also says. After He says repent, He gives a warning. He says this, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, I don't know about you, but I would not want Jesus saying to me, I'm coming to war against you with the sword of my mouth. This is judgment, people. This is God saying that the path that they are following and that they're trying to persuade you to pursue is actually a course that makes them enemies of God. Don't compromise in this. Don't bend. Don't vow to it. Repent. Something else. As we look in this text, we find that Jesus is going to judge those who are perpetuating this teaching that harms His flock. We find in Scripture that this is not uncharacteristic, this warning that Jesus will judge those who confuse and lead followers astray. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus was talking earlier in the 18th chapter about those who come to Him must have childlike faith, that it's a simple faith, a trusting faith that brings a person in relationship to God. But then he goes on to say, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. In other words, the person who has come to faith in Jesus with that childlike faith, God wants us to band together to fellowship with one another. But then look at verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Wow, some strong language, isn't it? This is how Jesus feels about those who lead people astray. And so He will war against them with the sword of His mouth. He will tie a millstone around their neck and throw them into the depths of the sea. Actually, it would be better for them to have that done than what Jesus would do to them. This is a strong statement that Jesus wants the church to understand. Then we have, in closing, the conquerors who will receive great blessing. Look at the last part, verse 17. He who has an ear, 
Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, this is a repeated phrase that we find in each one of the letters. And what he's saying to the people is this, look, don't just read what I say and find it to be something that is theologically interesting. Listen. And as the Spirit of God speaks to your heart, apply. That's the idea. So Jesus is saying to the church of Pergamum, there's an action that I want you to take. I want you to listen to what the Spirit of God is saying to you as I say these words and you heed them. You put them into practice. And then look at the promises that he gives. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Now, the first promise that he gives is hidden manna. Think about from your Old Testament what manna was. Manna was something that God provided for the daily needs of the people. Each day, manna would come. You couldn't take the manna and store it up for the next day because if you did, it would rot. So each day, God provided what you needed for that day. You know what I think God's promising by this hidden manna? I'm going to give you what you need for each of the difficult days that you have ahead. Sometimes when we look ahead, we wonder, how am I going to make it? How am I going to get through this next struggle, this next problem, this next painful thing that I have to go through? And when you look ahead and you think about all of that, it can get overwhelming, can't it? How am I going to do that? Well, just as God gave manna to the children of Israel for their daily needs, God gives those in Pergamum and believers everywhere what they need for the day. That's our hope. That's our promise. I've found in my life as I turn to Jesus and draw upon His resources, they are renewed every day. God blesses me with what I need in the moment, in the day that I depend on Him. So really, it's a reward for depending on the Lord Jesus Christ that He's giving to Pergamum. And then the last part, and a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, this one's a little more difficult than the manna. I read ten commentaries, and there were ten opinions about what the stone is. So rather than going off in a rocky interpretation, I'm going to be honest with you and say no one knows what this means. But here's what we do know. The people at Pergamum knew what it meant, and it meant something to them. It was a promise of hope. Isn't that what we need in the face of struggle, in the face of fear? We need hope. It's a personalized hope that God gives this church in Pergamum to get them through living where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. And I would say to you that God customizes to our unique needs what we need as well. Nobody else may understand what God has done for us, but we do, and God does, and He suits it to our need. My encouragement to you is if you're going through struggle, God is giving you hope. 
God is giving you what you need in the moment. Unique to you, but provided by the loving hand of God. This church at Pergamum, a church that had many positive aspects, important in their ability to stand firm and to hold fast to the name of Jesus. But it was a church that also got a little off the path in allowing those who would come in and teach people not to be followers of Jesus to have a place in their fellowship. As believers, we have to stand firm, stand strong in being followers of Jesus Christ. We don't allow the culture around us or the personality of someone who would come in and have a very endearing personality to be the standard by which we judge what is taught. We have a standard for what is taught, and it's the Word of God. So the encouragement of Scripture, the command of Jesus Christ, is to trust the Word. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this text. Thank You for the call that it gives us to be faithful. God, may we be faithful to Your Word. Guard us from tolerating the doctrines that would lead us off of the path of faithfulness. And God, let us repent where we need to, following you as faithfully as we can. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.